It's Thursday, May 1st. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Motley Fool Funds, Tim Hansen. Thanks for being here, man. It is it is my pleasure, and apparently I was the only one who was able to do it. <laughs> yeah, it just, no, it just kind of worked out that way. That's all right, though. That's all right. We'll have a good conversation, or I guess we'll have a conversation, and our dozens of listeners will decide whether or not it's good. But exactly. We will talk a little Berkshire Hathaway since the annual meeting is this weekend. Kentucky Derby also this weekend. I'm excited for that. Yep. I like the Derby. We will get into that. Let's start, though, with Yelp giving some good news to people who are just panicked about the technology sector. First quarter loss came in, I guess, lower than people were expecting. It certainly narrowed. They could have lost more money, Chris. They could have, they could have lost. Let's be clear. Right out of the gate. <laughs> Yelp, still not profitable. And yet... Signing up more members, 132 million now, and their increase in advertisers is getting pretty interesting. 65% increase in advertisers. I'm not a Yelp shareholder. I don't know that it's on my watch list, but uh, this seems like, if nothing else, Yelp has moved into the category of those startup technology companies. Short them at your own risk. Yes. I mean, (coughs) excuse me, Yelp has been down. It's had a tough beginning of the year, as a lot of those momentum technology stocks have. But fundamentally, I think this is a company that actually had a good idea. It solves a problem that that people have, and the amount of local search traffic they're getting is is encouraging. I mean, it looks looks good. Um, You know, I think the question I have for Yelp is one of credibility in in terms of, you know, there are a couple lawsuits now percolating through the legal system about um, whether Yelp is putting up or allowing people to put up fake reviews. Um, there are some questions about whether or not they sort of blackmail people who are being reviewed into becoming advertisers. And, you know, even if that, you know, even if that's a very small percentage of the overall Yelp reviews, that sort of brand and credibility risk has the potential to poison the entire ecosystem. And if you, because Yelp is only as good as the reliability of its advice. Right. And, and people will go away quite quickly if Yelp recommends a restaurant or a gardening, you know, a garden center or what have you, and you show up and you, it's, it's not as advertised. And you know, on a personal basis, I've found that Yelp reviews don't don't really mesh with um, my tastes, or uh, um, or you know, if Yelp says something is good, I often disagree a little bit. So I'm not I'm not a user of that, but I think that's something they need to watch. And they don't really call out that they don't really have any kind of accuracy metric in their investor deck, and that would be something I'd want to see, um, you know, as as an investor. Yeah, I, I forget who was telling me this. It, it might have been Bill Mann, but some I remember someone here at the office talking recently about Yelp and saying they use Yelp. They look at the reviews, but they don't. They ignore five-star reviews and they ignore one-star reviews, mm-hmm. figuring that emotion plays a greater role mm-hmm. in both of those. And you're going to get more useful information out of the people who are writing the three-star reviews, four-star reviews, that sort of thing. Uh, Dan Boyd is taking credit for that. Is, was that was that you? Was that Bo- our man behind the glass, Dan Boyd? Smarter than Bill Mann. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know that that is the the problem with online. Um, with online reviews is that you don't you don't know what emotion went into it. You don't know what state of mind somebody was in when they gave the review, if it was a weird experience. If, you know, if somebody might have had a dismal experience at a restaurant because their kid was acting up. You know, and it doesn't yeah. necessarily say anything about... Um, about, about boy, the, if you could review your kids. Oh, <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> the, you know, so you know, when it comes to... You know, I, I use Glassdoor, for example, from an investing side... But I, and I look at it when I'm looking at a company, and I don't look at it to see, hey, what is its Glassdoor ranking? You know, a good investment is going to have a good one, and a bad investment is going to have a bad one. You know, instead, I just I, I track the trend over time. 
And if they get better, they get worse. You know, generally speaking, if morale at a company is improving, business business is improving as well. You don't really have that luxury when it comes to picking a product on Amazon or picking a restaurant. I mean, you're making a moment in time decision, and um, you can't really track the trend for that for that product or 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 uh, service. Um, Amazon benefits from it for you just because it has so many. I think um, Yelp. Uh, you know, you go into a Yelp review, and uh, I think you know. A lot of places don't yet, despite their user growth, I wouldn't say that they have statistically significant numbers of reviews just yet. Definitely something to keep an eye on, though, because it does seem to, and you touched on this earlier, it does seem like they are building potentially a pretty nice network effect where uh-huh. the more members they bring in, the more reviews they get, the more eyeballs they can present to advertisers, the better the yeah. I mean, your your, your risk is you know Google can do that same thing, and they've got they've purchased review services, and and they obviously have a lot of infrastructure on the ground to do local search, and they, that's not a business they want to give up lightly. You know, competing with Google is hard. Um, Yelp could arguably be an acquisition target for Google, but again, the whole thing stems around credibility. I mean, if they lose their credibility, nobody's going to want them. As I mentioned, the Berkshire annual meeting is this weekend. We've got any number. I think we have. We've got maybe six people from this office going. Matt Copenheffer and David Hansen are out there along with Mike Olson. You didn't send anyone from Full Funds out there. No. You guys travel, but you're not, you're not going to Omaha. Look, you know, all credit to the guys who are going. I've never been. I've heard it's awesome and it's a lot of fun. But I'll say this. Anything that is just – I mean it's, it's basically simulcast around the world. You're not gaining any extra insight by by going. I mean, you're getting some experience, um, but you know, in terms of, it, I mean, it's expensive to go. I mean, they, uh, there was an article, and I forget what paper recently about just how much airlines and hotels jack up the price of everything yeah. in Omaha this time of year. And Omaha is not exactly an easy place to get to, nor would it crack my like top ten annual meeting destination, you know, things to do on the side. Buffett even list. came out and talked about, I think, Airbnb. Yeah, well, I think, I think that was his, like, 30-something assistant who alerted him okay. to that because I, I don't think Buffett's R- hip to the Airbnb. No, no, no. But. No, he, <laughs> probably not. But he – Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it does speak to the extent to which the local hotels in Omaha are jacking up prices. Yeah, no, it's a real problem. I mean, I, I, you know, some of those guys went a couple years ago ended up renting some, like, weird faux Victorian room, like, themed room – I mean, swingers pad type thing that was just awkward for everyone involved. But I got to go to the meeting. Um, for me, two young kids at home, the hassle, the, the the cards I'd have to play to get out of the house. I'd rather play those cards elsewhere. Right. So, uh, For anyone interested, uh, Becky Quick from CNBC uh, was the interview on Motley Fool Money last week. You can listen to that to get a preview of the meeting. What'd she think? Um well, one of the things we talked about was how uh, how it is relative to other annual meetings. So uh-huh. I think I think that's part of part of the appeal. Most annual meetings are just an hour and you're done. Yeah. Well, and also stupendously boring. And so the fact that you've got all these things on display and and events and that sort of thing, I, I think that's part of it. Um, but one of the other things we talked about was the, uh, and I guess this fits into the Kentucky Derby theme, sort of the. Who are the odds-on favorites now to replace Buffett as operational CEO? And she said that she thinks the favorite at the moment is – I think his name is Greg Abel okay. from Mid-American Energy. Um, uh, speaking of events, they are once again doing the 5K race that they did last year. That w- I would do that. That would be fun. Uh, Ma- our man Matt Kopenheffer 
I challenged him to get into the top 10. He finished 16th among, okay. among men last year. I, I think he can do top 10 this year, but we'll see. He'll, he'll That's be, a big impressive 50% improvement. Oh, well, you know, I'm, uh, I'm challenging him. Okay, great. <laughs> uh, but he'll be here on Monday, and so he, he can give uh, uh, his take. It's on a 5K, it right? It's a 5K. I mean, Matt's athletic prowess doesn't really shine until mile 40. Right. So, I mean, this Look, isn't really the race for him. If it, if it was a 50K, <laughs> I'm, I'm picking him to finish first. Yeah, yeah. Um, but but you and I were talking earlier today. Uh, there's a featured article on Fool.com right now laying out what you said was a pretty good case for breaking up Berkshire Hathaway, which, by the way, that's the first time I've ever really seen anyone making that case. We t- we've talked certainly in the past about Microsoft being broken up. Other companies, well, these are they should split this in two, that sort of thing. What uh, for folks who haven't read the article, what was essentially the crux of the case for breaking up Berkshire Hathaway? Well, well, you, you mentioned who would replace Buffett. You know, what this article would ask is, um, and I didn't write it. It was written by Thornton Oglove, who's a who's a um, very very sharp financial writer. Um, what what basically this is? No one should replace Buffett because Buffett's job. Isn't nece- doesn't necessarily need to be done after Buffett is gone. The company's already so big and, according to Buffett, so well-run at every segment level. Why do you need somebody micromanaging it all from a capital allocation standpoint? If somebody can run their business well, it stands to follow that they can allocate capital as well. And that by being lumped together in a large conglomerate and not having all their results broken out, you know, certain businesses and business segments are being undervalued relative to what their fair market value would be. And so you have to ask, you know, what what benefit does something that's owned by Berkshire Hathaway derive from being owned by Berkshire Hathaway in that conglomerate structure? Um, you know, one of the obvious ones would be, you know, they, they benefit from an extremely low cost of capital. So any breakup plan would have to take that into account. You know, if, if Burlington Northern basically can borrow money for free right now and they would have to pay 4 or 5% to borrow money in the future, it would, it would arguably it would make more sense for them to stay attached to an insurance arm or you know a cash-rich balance sheet that would allow them to continue to be so creditworthy, um, you know. But but having said that, certainly I'd love to get you know get a look at you know which segments in in the Berkshire portfolio are doing well. Um, you know, particularly now with the housing rebound happening, you don't really get a sense. They have a lot of housing-related investments, but you don't really get a sense of how well they are all rebounding. And and you know, as housing stocks like Fortune Brands and American Woodmark have generally done well over the past two years or so, Berkshire really hasn't followed suit in that regard, partly because of the results that they're putting up are being shielded from investing eyes. Um, I think you also mentioned on Twitter, Buffett doesn't want to give up the soapbox. Oh, no, no. I mean, <laughs> not yeah. You're going to have to pry. You know, I, I have great admiration for Warren Buffett, but also I, over time, have developed less patience for all the grandstanding that he <laughs> does and um, hypocrisy he often shows. Um <laughs> And, and you know how so? Give me an example of hypocrisy. Of, of hypocrisy. Well, for example, you know, most recently, uh, you have the uh, you know how he's rail you know talked for years about executive comp and how you know he makes a hundred thousand dollars or whatever it is, and you know he's railed against people in the industry who make more than that. And then you know David um, uh, Winter, or the Wintergreen Fund comes out against this somewhat egregious Coca Cola executive comp proposal, and they asked Buffett to step up and vote his shares against it, and he didn't. You know, so he given an opportunity to sort of put his money where his mouth is, he, he or opted, put his vote where his mouth is. You know, is. he opted not to, and I think that's because he values his his network of connections and friends um, at times, you know, more so than the principles he he espouses. I mean, you've also got you know, sort of the everyone should pay their fair share in taxes political thing he's been on for years now. But then all the they they do a lot of tax shielding, obviously. 
um, at Berkshire Hathaway. Right. And so, you know, you would like someone, I think if you're going to be outspoken, and this would be general, not just apply to Warren Buffett, but I, I would apply this to myself and, and, and anyone. If you're going to be outspoken about a view politically, I think you should, you back, should it up. back it up. You should walk your talk, right? There's the traditional six-hour Q&A session on Saturday. I'm curious because you're not going to be there. But if you did have the I'll be preparing for the derby. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be making juleps. Um, and, and, and probably reading all the blogs about it. What? Uh, I, yeah. I don't mean to be negative ever. I think it's a tremendous company. I own shares. I read the reports religiously. I, I, extremely wise man. Yeah. I would be remiss if I did not point out we, we will have extensive coverage on fool.com. Uh, so anyone interested over the weekend, uh, definitely come to fool.com because we, we will have lots and lots of coverage. But if you did have the opportunity to ask Buffett a question, what do you think you'd ask? Or you could direct it to Charlie Munger because he's up there on the stage as well. But it, is there is there anything in particular you're curious about? By the way, when I posed this question to uh, our good friend Joe Mager through email <laughs> last week because when I was prepping to interview Becky Quick, I just said, well, you know, what, you know, what would you ask? And this won't shock you at all. Joe came back with such deep, wonderfully Mager-esque, deep-in-the-weeds questions about you know their share repurchasing and price-to-tangible book. And, all, and I, just, I was like, those, those are – yeah, I'm not going to ask those. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but what would you ask Buffett? Um, you know, it, 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 it's a good question. I, I think you know, Buffett is probably getting towards the, the tail end of his career. And I think it's – I think it's apparent that his investing strategy and philosophy has changed over time. Um, you know, particularly in the last five to ten years, you know, he's been able to do deals that basically no one else in the world will be able to do um, because he had of his reputation, his access to capital, and and they're and they're self fulfilling in some ways because you know when Warren Buffett gets involved, people just sort of believe that it's going to be a good deal, and that's nice. It's nice to have that amount of credibility. So I think I just Maybe a, 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 reflect, a reflective question, just you know, from your days when you were uh, you know looking for cigar butts and you know pulling out paper financials and having to you know wait three months for them to show up, versus today, you know how has your how has your your investing process and idea generation process changed? You know, when when you decided to go ask Goldman Sachs or Bank of America if they needed capital, you know, obviously you know if they came to him, that's very different. It's a very different world than the one he inhabited when he was starting out. Right. Obviously, he had to be much more aggressive and 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 whatnot. And so, just be just be curious. You know, which way did he like better, and um, what what what's changed in, ter- in terms of idea gen? Because I think idea gen is the most interesting part of. It's not you know vetting an idea. Everybody can do you know because it, it involves math and some critical thinking and whatnot. But it's just having the conception like you know what I should look at Yelp or. Yeah, you know, this is a tough time for banks. I should look at Bank of America. You know, that that it's that light bulb that I think creates ninety five percent of the value for an investor who beats the market. And, and then and then the legwork is important, but it's it's not the same. It doesn't involve that keen insight. Well, you're right, and you can also farm that out. You can't, oh yeah, yeah. You yeah. can't really farm out idea generation, but once you have the idea, then you can say to you know, if you're Warren Buffett, someone on your staff, okay. Go look at that. Yeah, yeah. Do the numbers. Dig in. Yeah, run the numbers on this. Uh, you mentioned the Kentucky Derby at the moment, and of course odds change. But at the moment, the favorite in the Kentucky Derby race this weekend is a horse named California Chrome, five to two favorite. Um, but more importantly, I haven't looked at the field yet. So okay, 
More there are going to be a lot of horses though this year. It's going to be a wild start. 20 horses Woo! in the race this year. 6.24 p.m. Eastern time. That's when the race starts. Yep. So that gives you plenty of time on Saturday mm-hmm. to prepare the traditional mint julep. First of all, for someone who doesn't know, what, what goes into a mint julep? This is, this is the signature drink of the Kentucky Derby. Uh, it's pretty much just bourbon, Chris. <laughs> no, no there's, there's, there's more to it than that because if it was just bourbon, I would drink them. And you I, don't drink them? I, every once in a while at the Derby – you know, at one time I was at your place for a derby party. Uh-huh. I, I had a mint julep, but you didn't like it. I I liked it fine, but I like bourbon just for the bourbon. So okay. bourbon with other stuff is well, less interesting to, be, to me than just bourbon. So drinking just straight bourbon at four in the afternoon is going to make for a pretty short evening. Um, but <laughs> that's why you got to practice. Yeah. So so the the julep is essentially um, <laughs> some combination of bourbon, uh, simple syrup sugar and water, uh, lots of ice, and mint, as its name would, would imply. Um, there are lots of different ways that people have to make them, and everyone who has their way is very, very loyal to their way. So if I reveal my way, I don't want to get angry emails that I'm doing it wrong. Right. <laughs> because I know there are going to be people who think I'm doing it wrong, but I, yeah, I've read, I've come, my, my way is a blend of convenience and um, tradition, all, all sort of melted into one, acknowledging the fact that I have a three-year-old, so I can't muddle my mint. Quite as right. lovingly as some might have in the past. Um, so you get you get your silver julep cup. You got to keep it in the fridge so it gets very very cold. Um, you then in the bottom of the cup you mix. Um, I usually do about a tablespoon of simple syrup and then um, probably two to three sprigs of mint. You get your muddler and you muddle the mint to release the flavor mm-hmm. into the simple syrup. Uh, then you take crushed ice. Um, I found that using a hand blender. Um, with the little attachment, little mini blender on the bottom. Okay. It's a great way to make crushed ice or make snow, as my son, who learned how to make a julep last weekend, uh, called it. You make your snow. You then fill your, your, your cup to the brim with snow. Uh, and then you just pour bourbon on top um, until your cup is full. You, uh, I, you know, some people, and this is where the tradition comes in. Some people would say you're done. You're done there. You put a sprig of mint on top, maybe a lemon, maybe a little powdered sugar on top. But once you pour the bourbon in, you're done. And your first sip will be basically 100% bourbon. And the time you get done, your head is swimming and you're getting this like sweet nectary bottom part, which is, you know, elation. Um, I found it's a little bit – I take a long spoon and I just sort of – I do a a quick mix just to spread out the sugar a little bit more. Um, I I put a sprig of mint on top. I don't like lemon or extra sugar. Just put a sprig of mint on top and then uh, you just – you nurse that for the next uh, 90 minutes or so. Some people – and as the ice melts, obviously it releases you know the flavor profile of the drink. It's, it's a wonderful drink. It is a wonderful drink. Some people, I find, it's been my experience, they really go overboard with the sugar. Yeah, I mean that's the danger. I mean, and, you know, and that's if, you, if you've ever been in New Orleans, um, you know the famous. You know there are a number of famous drinks that have come out of New Orleans. One is the is the Hurricane, right? Mm-hmm. And the Hurricane, if you get it from what's the famous Irish bar on on Bourbon Street. Don't know. You know, if you get it there, it's like it's like it's like a Slurpee. It's like a sugar bomb. Um, if you go down the street a ways, there's a very old, 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 old um, bar called, I think it's called Lafitte's Blacksmith Shop. And, and they don't use like artificial, they use just you know, natural fruit juice. And it's a very different and much more enjoyable for my palate drink because it's not quite as sugar bomby, but you can taste the alcohol. Obviously, some people like to mask the alcohol, and that, you know, I, I, that's, not, that's not real mixology right. in that. You know, if you're, mixology isn't hiding the alcohol, it's like blending it into a new and wonderful concoction. So. Be careful with the sugar. Um, you know, I was I, I make the simple syrup, syrup ahead, of, ahead of hand, so I can just kind of you know, keep it in a little bottle, and that makes it easy. 
You're not getting this on Bloomberg, people. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> I can keep going on You're that. You're not getting this on Bloomberg. Next week, the martini. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can read more from Tim Hansen and his colleagues by going to foolfunds.com. Sign up for declarations, the monthly, the free monthly newsletter that those guys produce. It's great stuff. I think, I, I think next issue should just be drink recipes. You well, know, I mean, we also, could we could pivot this show. Also, also some <laughs> investing as well. Uh, thanks for being here, man. Thanks, Chris. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That does it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you on Monday. Mm-hmm.